0: was reading in uh, matthew chapter four calling of the first disciples and it struck me that as we we move toward easter in our culture uh... there you know, the, the discussions about christ ramp up it's already done so uh... the latest issue of national geographic it's the journeys of the apostles on it uh... you go to uh... the cable channels and there's especially right there in the middle of uh, if you have u-verse right there in the middle all of those history channels lot of uh, shows that are being broadcast right now on those cable channels that deal with Jesus. And it's kind of interesting uh, the way that Jesus is portrayed. A a, a lot of it is good history. A lot of it is bad uh, Bible uh, interpretation. But but probably more than anything else is uh, when you read Matthew chapter 4, Jesus begins to speak for the first time. And He says, Repent Believe the good news and follow me. And the way that Jesus is presented in these documentaries and and, uh, these television shows and in articles, is so, you know, he's the kind of Jesus who would never challenge you. He would certainly never confront you or contradict you. He's certainly not the kind of individual that would call you and you would get out of your boat leaving your father uh, with the nets and follow him. One of the things that intrigues me so much about the gospel is the change that it calls us to, and that's really at the heart of the passage. that Frank uh, read for us just a couple of minutes ago, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump right into the middle of Colossians chapter three. Pray with me, Father. We we see the the uh, the change that has been brought into your good creation because of the, the fallen nature of it because of the sin that we introduced when we chose, Father, of our own will due to our, our inferior intellect to, uh, to eat of that forbidden tree and to try to become what we were never meant to be as creatures, and that is the Creator. But what really stuns us as, as we, we really do time with uh, the sacred Word that You've given us, the Bible is how through Your great might and power and through this infinite mercy and compassion, You are, you are turning everything around. Everything is being put to rights. And it begins, Father, with, with Jesus dying on the cross and through our faith, the washing away of our sins, the Spirit coming to live in us, we are changed and, and reconverted. Perhaps this is the best way to say it. We understand this, Father, that we are to change. We are to be transformed in radical ways. And our life is to be different. And so as we we study uh, this, this tremendous passage out of Colossians 3, what we're asking for tonight in the name of Jesus is eyes that see and ears that hear. For we want to discern it, and in discerning it, to understand it in practical ways in which we too can be changed and clothed with the kinds of things that Paul writes about. So bless us in this way. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. When uh, people talk about the gospel, we talk about grace, we underscore the freeness of it. It is free. In Ephesians chapter 2, we are saved by grace, not by our own works, but it is the gift of God in order for him to get the glory. We talk about the freeness of it, but at the same time, we need to realize that it costs God everything in order for it to be free for human beings. And inevitably, there is a problem that arises when people begin to see, really begin to see, the freeness of that grace. And that is the problem of a life, of an individual in life, that wants to do anything it wants to do because of that grace. They say that they may believe the gospel. They really believe the gospel. They believe that they are sinners. They believe that it is by the cross that they are saved. But it certainly doesn't mean that they have to change their life. If God loves me unconditionally and that freely... Then I can do whatever I want, and God is going to accept me for who I am. It's the age-old problem. We read about it in Romans 6. If the gospel is free, then let sin abound, or or let sin, let let me sin and do whatever I want to do, so that grace may abound and overflow. The problem is, is that that's wrong-headed thinking. And Paul brings it out so very clearly in Romans 6. But look at the very end of what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3. He says, "As God's chosen people." Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. To be chosen does not mean to be choice or to be prime as if you know we were buying a, a, a roast. It simply means that God chose to come after you and to come after me. Now the passage that that Frank read is about the gospel that is free. But the life changes that come uh, uh, about when you believe it because it is free and comes to you freely and is easily accessible by you. It is free, but it also entails changes. If you are a Christian, then your life changes because of that grace, because of the grace of God. Your life should change in ways that people can see it. People should be able to look at your marriage and understand some things about the gospel. That's what Ephesians chapter 5 is saying. That people should be able to look at the way that you conduct yourself in the workforce or or in in the academy, in the the academic world, or wherever it is that you might be, whether it's a neighborhood or out at a restaurant. They should be able to see something about the power of the gospel and the beauty of God's love and the way that your life has changed. The gospel brings a change to your life that's radical. It is revolutionary in how it it sweeps through your heart. And we're going to look at it in this passage through a couple of different uh, uh, sections. Uh, the, The first is really about the inevitability of this kind of conversion. Look at the striking verses, verses 9 and 10 of Colossians 3. He says, "...I don't want you to lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices." And you've put on the what? The new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its Creator. Now what is intriguing about this is the radical language that Paul uses to describe what's going on here in the life of the disciple. Now, everyone changes, right? We change from time to time. We change our hair color. A couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, I went to the uh, gal that cuts my hair and said, you know, I want something different. She goes... Well, what do you want to look like? And I said, as long as it doesn't look like Loud it, I'm okay. She says, but well, that doesn't help. I'm not going to make you look like Loud it anyway. So I said, hey, can you do a little James Bond thing? And she laughed. And she said, well, you know, some, there's change and then there's the impossible. We change our wardrobes. We change our diets. We change our workout regimen. We decided, you know, at the beginning of the year that we're going to read good books rather than watch bad television. There's a lot of things we do. But to go through enough change, enough of a shift to actually say, as Paul says here, a new self, a new person. Well, that's just revolutionary. And Paul, again, he's invoking the language of changed identity. He is talking about reconversion, that is, true conversion to God in which everything about you changes as you become that new person. As, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it's about being conformed to the image of the Son. It is about changing. It's about becoming like Christ in all that you do. Now, the reason I use this word reconversion is because I think that everybody's converted to something. We may, may not want to admit it or not, but we're, convi- we're, we're converted to something. And it's silly to think that Christians are the only ones who are going around converting people, even Even today. With, with the writings of um, uh, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and the new atheists, even atheists are, are, are becoming very evangelistic in the world in the sense of trying to convert people to atheism. Everyone is converted to something. The question is, what will it be? What will you be converted to? See, the heart is made to worship. The Bible doesn't say, you know, there has to be a God. The Bible assumes that there's a God. What the Bible says is that we should focus on the one true God. Again, the assumption is is that we're going to worship something. What the Bible is fighting for with our souls is what will it be that we will worship? What is it that we're going to be converted to? Is it going to be the one true God, or is it going to be something else? Well, which leads to sort of the second thought in this passage, and, 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 and it's this. How does this gospel really profoundly and utterly convert people? How do you make Jesus Lord so that there really is this new self that is formed where there was the old person? Well, back now at the beginning of the passage, there is this really important statement that's made by, five in, in, by Paul in verse 5. He writes of being dead to the earthly nature. And then in verse 9, he says, Don't lie to, to each other. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices. And there's this long list of things that are not good to have, like anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech, and the list goes on. The problem is that there are a lot of people who find themselves struggling with these as they occur and reoccur in life. And it's not that we really want to keep doing these things, but we find ourselves struggling with doing the things that we really don't want to do. Now, how do we deal with this? Well, there are two words in the middle of of this text that are important. Uh, This word in verse five which is translated evil desire is really in in the original language epithumia it's one of these words that we talk about a lot it's a very difficult word to translate it's actually two words but what it means in this context is this over-the-top excessive desire it's this hyper desire it's this over-the-top desire that uh, that begins to consume now the translation evil desire makes us think of what Well, desiring things that are evil or forbidden, that's what we think of, right? Wrong. I mean, we may think that, but the word means more than that. I mean, consider the Pharisees, for example. The Pharisees, not in a million years, would they ever want to do what was on the forbidden list? But were they not still lost? And not only were they lost, they were a part of what was the big problem in the world. And not only that, they had a hand in the killing of the Messiah. Epithumia is not um, this ordinary desire for something that is bad. It is an inordinate desire for something that is good. It is over-desire. Now, Again, how in the world is that wrong? Well, this is where the second word comes in, and it's the word idolatry, which is, in this text, also associated with greed. And what Paul is getting at here is that all of our wrath, all of our bitterness, all of our slander, all of the things that are wrong with us go back to idolatry. Idolatry is taking something that's good and making it an ultimate thing. Going back to the Old Testament, what God is saying right at the at the very beginning to the first people who are to be His chosen nation is that you are to have no other God before me. Nothing that in this good creation should ever become ultimate that it trumps my place in your heart. The very first commandment is that. And you have two options. You can worship God or you can choose to worship something else but it's impossible for your heart not to worship something we are converted to something and the way that you know that you have them is that you have this little test what is th- the thing that if you lost it or it failed you would make you not want to live uh, what are those things what it, you know it may be a relationship it may be your job it may be your resources it may be your status but it's something that you look to for hope in the future and that you look to in order to give your life some meaning to give it to, to give it a definition that means something significant to you or the other test is is not to to follow you know the the the, the idols that are sometimes camouflaged but the other test is to follow those over desires if if a good thing something that you like is blocked then you're sad. If an ultimate thing is taken, then you want to jump off a bridge. This is why we do the things that we don't want to do. We give our lives to this functional Savior. We're converted to it. And that functional Savior gives you an identity and it drives you. And until you come clean with the functional Saviors in your life and are ready to chase God and as that ultimate thing, you know, you, we, we talked about this in our class this morning as, as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount and our study of Matthew and our insight uh, a study in our adult classes. You know, Kevin Haley, he's teaching the young adult class and um, we're talking about this hungering and thirsting after righteousness. What in the world does that mean? And and uh, one of the things that we talked about, uh, you know, this morning was, um, you know, is is... Is this connected somehow to fasting or, 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 or what? And somehow the conversation, we, we started talking about, you know, there was a time in my life when, when I was wrestling and I was eating three out of, of seven days. Three days I would eat, very little, and, and four days I would not. And after year after year after year after year after year after year after year, after year, after year of that, I, I grew so tired of going without food that uh, it, when, when, <laughs> when, when I was exposed to it again, my hungering and thirsting was satisfied. And, and and not only that, even in the years following, 30 years ago when I was in high school, you know, that, that, that going with that, that hungering and thirsting has not been satisfied to the point that I don't notice, you know, a sonic when I drive by it. Now, it, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and are seeking to be satisfied like that. When we are exposed to God, who is the epitome of that righteousness and that justice and that love and the, the center of all things, when we are exposed to it, even though the decades pass, do we still yearn for it and long for it and notice it? And the access to it on a daily basis has not really you know, taken away that desire, so great is it? That's the difference. And until we come clean with the functional saviors in this life, where we should be hungering after God and thirsting after God and being satisfied with God, and yet we're trying to fill that God-shaped hole in our heart with something else, until we're, 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 we're ready to come clean with those functional saviors in life and are ready to chase God as the ultimate thing, then we are going to be driven by all kinds of dangerous forces in this life. And the gospel, friends, is about freeing you up from all of that. Now how does it work? How is the gospel really the power of God? Well, this leads to that third unit in the text, which is just this very thing, how the gospel works. He says in verses 1 through 4, Since then you have been raised with Christ, you set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, his, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Now here is a statement to guide our thoughts. If what I've said is true, that everyone is converted to something, whether it's skepticism, capitalism, communism, atheism, humanism hedonism, whatever it might be, then I think that this statement is true. The idols of your heart cannot be removed. They can only be replaced. These idols are replaced by the expulsive, extracting power of something else. You see, this is one of the reasons I keep saying that a strong will will only get you so far. I mean, you can say, yes, I'm not going to... to, to to, uh, to be involved in this kind of idolatrous behavior, whatever it might be. And I'm going to grit my teeth and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ratchet up my strength and I'm going to do it. And you might be successful for a little while until you come to that unguarded moment. And in that unguarded moment, the idol, the functional Savior, the thing that you are converted to to give your life meaning and identity will pop in some kind of way that is displeasing to God whether it's road rage out on 410 during rush hour or giving into pornography because sex is at the very center of everything human according to the the culture I mean that's why that just say no to drugs campaign did not work you can't just say no to something and out of the strength of your own will decide that I'm never going to do it anymore and be successful in that I mean, the reason that some of that stuff is done in the first place, whatever it might be, is because there is that hole in your heart that you're trying to fill. And you just can't say no to that thing you're trying to cram into it without saying yes to something else. And so he says, since you've been raised with Christ, you have to set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You set your mind, not just your heart, but your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Notice the two things He says here. He says, set your heart and set your mind. Start with the mind. When you set your mind... um, on something what what you set your mind on is is really what your heart is going to be riveted to now now notice how he says that we have died and have been raised with christ and seated at the right hand of god when you repented and when you were baptized and when you were uh, you confessed that jesus is lord you and christ became one in fact, that's one of the things that Colossians says, that Christ is in you and you are in Christ. And now God looks at you in the same way that He looks at Christ. And you are free of your sins and you're raised and, you're, and and that language of being seated is part of a great metaphor of victory in battle and exaltation and honor. There is this king who sends his son to battle. The son wins. The king's heart bursts with joy. He puts the son at his right hand. The Gospel is saying... That is where Christ put you when you became one with Him and He with you in baptism. And Paul says that God delights in you as if you had done everything that Christ had done. Now if you know this, and and, and not just because you've memorized the Scripture, but I mean you really know this, you know this like you know the back of your hand. You, you know this because you've been contemplative with it for years and years and years. And you're, you're thinking about it. and You're, you're seeing in your mind the, practic- the practical side, the pragmatic side of what it means to be seated with Christ at the right hand of God. If you know this, it will begin freeing you of the functional saviors. Because you see where you're really at. The Gospel is not that we present this good record to God and He accepts us. It is God who gives us this perfect, unblemished record in Christ. And not only do you set your mind on it, but you set your heart on it as well. You think correctly and that heart follows. Jesus is the only Savior that forgives you when you fail. He's the only Lord that will never turn you into uh, an, an abused slave. He's the one that died so that we can live. He becomes our life. So when we fail, we don't have to say we got to buck up, we got to do better. When we fail, we don't look for ways to feel better about ourselves. When we fail, do you know what we do? We go to worship. Worship is the real answer. Going to declare our love to God and gathering around the table and being reminded that that God, at great cost to Himself, sent His Son in love in order to become our sin, our iniquity, our transgression, so that we might become His righteousness in order for us to set our hearts on God above all things. And therefore the Gospel literally frees you up to live a joyous life. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And and perhaps you know you've been struggling with this very thing. You may not have had a a, a word for it, the epithumia, the, the, the hyper desire, but you're beginning to see that maybe your life and 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 the joy that you know you're supposed to have, and that peace that passes understanding, the inexpressible joy that Peter talks about, Paul talks about, the peace that passes understanding. All the, the, the blessings of, of, of confidence that Paul talks about in Romans 8 and, and that power of being strengthened in the inner man that he talks about in Ephesians, all, all of these blessings that as you read the, the texts that just stand up and, and, and shout at you, this is the way your life is supposed to be. All of that has been blocked. It's been thwarted. It's been short-circuited. It's been diffused. It's been disengaged, disconnected. Because your heart is really not with the Savior. Your heart is with these other things. I'm going to ask you to do something very brave tonight. And that is to repent. The Bible describes repentance as, 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 as coming to your senses in Luke chapter 15, story of the prodigal son. When the, the son who went out in the lavish life came to his senses. He was repenting and turning his life around and going to where he should have been in the first place. But as we've also studied uh, in John's messages in our study of Matthew on Sunday mornings, you know, this repentance is also about choosing God and God's way. It's choosing God to be the ultimate thing. It's choosing God to be the highest thing. It's choosing God to be the pinnacle of all desire. It's choosing God to be... You know, the problem is is that we get so messed up with our terminology you know there are so many people and rightfully so that that have have decided that they wanted to to debunk christianity that they rejected because of what they consider to be religious extremism and the problem is is that the right on one hand you have a savior who is strong and holy and mighty on the other hand you have a, a savior who will not break a bruised reed and he will not snuff out a smoldering wick. The problem is, is the extremism. The problem is you have somebody who has chosen just the strong side and has interpreted as the ultimate thing. And what has happened is that they, you know, they don't find their lives being full of love and they don't find their lives full of compassion. and They don't find their lives being relationally strong and they find themselves separating from other people and they find themselves, you know... uh, uh, sort of repelling people through sometimes religious meanness. The flip side of that are, are the folks that choose that the compassion and the gentleness and the forgiveness, but they never ever connect to the holiness or the strength or any of these things. And the problem is is that extremism and not the fanaticism that takes on both and says that I will take on... That kind of, of personhood where I do believe in the holiness of God and I will live my life in a discipled way where I look like Jesus and I have strength to resist the devil when it comes to, to temptation. And I will take a stand about things that are unjust in the world. But at the same time, I'm not going to be mean-spirited about it. I'm going to be compassionate and grace-filled and I'm going to be tender. And like the prophet spoke about Jesus and Jesus said about Himself, those bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, I'm going to bring them back to life. The problem is, 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 we don't get transformed into that kind of a person because of these, these ultimate things, these good things being turned into ultimate things. Or over desiring something. Or not being fanatical enough when it comes to our discipleship and clothing ourselves with righteousness and all of those beautiful things that look like Jesus that Paul talks about in Colossians 3. And if we can help you with that. In any way tonight. Help you to understand more fully in, in practical ways for your life through counsel and prayer and study with you. We want you to come and to talk to the shepherds who are going to be down here at the front. We'll help you with that. That's what we want for you in life. Is what Paul is talking about in Colossians three. But maybe you've been struggling with where to begin. And you're beginning to realize that you've you've never really done the first thing, and that is to decide that Christ is all in all. That Christ is the pinnacle. And what you've been doing is trying to manage the affairs of your life in such a way that it would keep you out of trouble. And what you find is it just gets you in trouble time after time after time after time. And tonight you're ready to take your hands off the steering wheel and to turn it over to the captain of your soul, Jesus himself. And to repent and to confess and to be baptized And to have that spirit come inside of you and to live inside of you and to transform you and to help you, strengthen you in the inner man, all of these things in order for you to find the kind of life, the the new self that Paul talks about in Colossians 3. If that describes you tonight, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as Jeff leads us in the song. Let's stand and sing together.